0: Well, what has is going to happen this weekend in my imagination so far is that we are going to pay a lot of attention to the subject of joy. And what I imagine that we're going to do is spent a certain amount of time trying to arouse joy and experience joy. But we're also going to spend a certain amount of time talking about joy, because we really need to know what it is. When we know what it is, we understand a little bit of how it works, then this will make it a lot easier for us to understand what is what we need to do in order to experience more joy. And we're also going to talk about the role that joy plays in meditation and in spiritual practice, because it's very important. It plays a very major role. Uh, and because it plays such an important role, it has been examined very closely. And so uh, we're, we're going to uh, share in that examination and see if it helps us to be able to bring more joy into our lives through better understanding. So where we're going to start with is, let's talk a little bit about what is joy. Is everybody did anybody here uh, know what joy is? Never heard of it. <laughs> oh, I know that we all use the word all the time, and whether, whether we can tell somebody what it is, we certainly have a pretty good intuitive sense of what joy is. Yeah.
1: It, it feels bound with equanimity and the sense of lightness to me. <laughs>
0: joy bound with equanimity and a sense of lightness. I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's very true. What about joy and happiness? Yes?
2: They're different as far as my physical sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can recognize joy because I have an effervescence behind my face and the feeling is very expansive in my chest. Mm-hmm. There's things happening throughout my body that
0: are different than happiness. So, what you're saying is joy has a physical sensations associated with it and uh, effervescence, a kind of energy, too, would you say? Yes, I agree with that. That's true. Whereas happiness,
2: It's so expansive, but it, um, it's different. It feels. Joy is more expansive, more, more bigger in the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, more exciting. Can, yeah, happy. I can be exciting. That's even different, too. <laughs> I've been spending time looking at my emotions.
0: Joy and happiness come together often, right? Surely. We think we just think of happiness, it's it's not as exuberant, it's not as expansive, exciting. Yeah. Serene.
3: more serene. Hmm? It
0: feels more serene. More serene, quieter, yeah. Now are we talking about something that's qualitatively different, or is joy just the same thing as happiness, just more of it?
4: happiness to me seems to require or seems to suggest a source exterior to myself as a causing of happiness. But joy is a feeling that can, can well up without a particular external cause.
0: Well, now it's, it's, that's a very important thing that you said about joy, that it seems to be able to arise internally, but do external things not sometimes arouse joy as well? Yes, yes they do. They can come from both sources. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, like, I, I just finally clicked on to uh, PD and Sukha being joy and happiness. Yes. So, you know, so joy then is that what you were talking about, that sense of excitement, it's more, it excites the mind more, it makes your thoughts race a little bit and can throw you off equanimity. Yes. And the happiness is when that quiets down and settles down into a more serene.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. These things are all true. You know, it's an interesting fact that in the English language we do have these two different words, joy and happiness. And the way we use them and the way we understand them, they're, hot. They're, they're obviously very, very closely related, very closely interconnected, but we also, I think all of us have the sense that they're not really the same thing. It's not just the joy is a more excited form of happiness, for example. Is there anyone that doesn't, that's your intuitive understanding of these, these words? I mean, words are just symbols for something that some kind of, of experience that we need to communicate from one to another. And we do have these two different words. And you mentioned piti and sukha. Uh, these are Pali words. And when we talk about the, the role that joy plays in meditation and in spiritual practice, we're going to pay very careful attention to how these words, "pt" and sukha, have been used. Um, they are in the Pali language, uh, which is the, the language in which the Buddha's teachings have been preserved. It is uh, from the same root and very closely related to the Sanskrit language. And as a matter of fact, uh, the are very similar words in the Sanskrit language. But they have been. Pali is a language that hasn't been used for, uh, except within within Buddhism, uh, for uh, a couple thousand years. So it's you know it's like Latin and ancient Greek and things like that. It's not a language that's commonly used. And one of the things that's happened there. Is that some of the words have been very, have been defined in very specific and very technical ways. And of course, in this case, they've been defined by uh, people who have done uh, tens of thousands of hours of meditation, mindfulness practice, internal self examination, examining all the different aspects of the mind and the experiences that a human being has. And so they. What they've done is they've taken the words piti and sukha, which are exactly the words that we translate as joy and happiness into English. And in the original language, I think, I suspect it was probably sort of the way it is with joy and happiness for most of us in English. We have an intuitive sense, but most of us have never examined really specifically what exactly are these things. How are they different from either, each other? And what is the significance of them? Is there some particular importance and significance to them? But this is what has happened with the words piti and sukha in Pali and their uh, counterparts in Sanskrit, is that you've got a whole lot of people very interested in understanding the true nature of reality, what it means to be a human being, the nature of human experience have examined this very carefully and use these words in a very specific way. So we will draw upon that to understand more stiff specific, more specifically what these things are. Now one thing though because they are technical terms now um, sometimes we lose Contact with, uh, you know, with over the period of 2,500 years, we'll look at these ancient texts and we'll, we'll lose contact with the original context of these words. Because the word piti uh, in Pali, when it was used uh, amongst the, the uh, people in the uh, regions of north, uh, 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 northern India in the time of the Buddha, was the word. That that would be used to describe the joyful feeling, you know, when uh, um, somebody's uncle comes and says to this uh, ten-year-old girl, "Here, this pony is yours." And PT arises, (laughs) right? That's PT. Or uh, when a young person who's very attracted to another one finds that that person reciprocates their feelings, and PT arises. So that was PT the way it was originally used. But the way we'll usually encounter it nowadays is something that occurs amongst advanced meditators. PT arises. And PT arises in four grades with all kinds of interesting fireworks and bells and whistles along with it. an indication of a particular stage in meditation practice, all of which is totally true. But just looking at that part, divorces us somewhat from its deeper and broader meaning, and perhaps makes it much more difficult to understand. When uh, during the colonial era, er, era, there were many British scholars who became interested in Buddhism and started examining the text. And they tried to figure out what this word PT meant. And they went by the descriptions of the PT that occurred in meditation. And they got the habit of frequently translating it as rapture, some sort of of almost supernatural, mystical, ecstatic state. Which is actually a good description of the way that it can be and the way it sometimes occurs. You know, but if you, trans- if you translate PT as rapture, you kind of lose the sense that it's connected with the normal experience of ordinary human beings. Whereas you translate it as joy and you realize that oh, that's a- it's the same thing that uh, young lovers feel or somebody when their lottery number comes up or they get a raise at work or, you know. It's the same kind of stuff. And to really understand it and to make use of it, we need to, we need to have that deeper understanding of it. So. so when we talk about joy this weekend, we'll, we'll try to both acquire the, the broader sense, the more universal sense of what it means, and also the specific sense of what it means in terms of certain kinds of practices. And we'll see that it's all the same stuff, and by seeing that it's all the same stuff, we'll learn more about its nature and how to make it more, uh, a part of more of our life. But I think it's safe to say that all of you would like to experience more joy, and that with joy comes happiness, and... um, you don't necessarily want to go around bouncing excited and in a joyful state all the time, but you'd like to have enough joy so that there's a lot of that more serene, peaceful happiness that's a part of your life. Right? So, and that really is, uh, in, in one sense, that's really what the whole point of meditation and dharma practice is, to get to that place. Um, let's talk about happiness a little bit. What exactly is happiness? It's a feeling. There are physical feelings, some of which are pleasant, and some of which are unpleasant, and some of which are neutral, right? And then there are mental feelings, Happiness is a pleasant mental feeling, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what's the opposite of happiness? What?
3: Sadness. Sadness. Sadness.
0: Sadness. 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 Happiness. That limit of happiness is sadness. Okay. Um, what is unhappiness? Is that just the absence of happiness? I'm unhappy today. Oh, it means you're neutral. No, that doesn't no, a When you are not happy, um, you may very well be sad, But you might be other things as well, right? Can you be unhappy without being sad? Mm -hmm. If you're sad, will you be unhappy? Almost certainly. So in a way, sadness is more like joy. Mm -hmm. You could say sadness is to unhappiness like joy is to happiness. Unhappiness, so it's an interesting thing that... Happiness is a kind of feeling that you know. It's, its opposite is is the absence. Well, as I say, a lot of very brilliant, very inspired, uh, very wise people have examined these things, uh, starting with the Buddha. And what if we if we look at the language that they use, they have the word sukha, which means happiness. And the opposite of the word sukha uh, is dukkha, which we don't have a counterpart for in English. But in, in Pali, dukkha is the opposite of sukha. And dukkha, what it means, is unsatisfactory. That's hardly that much better than unhappy, is it? But dukkha is dissatisfaction. So to be in severe pain is dukkha. To experience terrible grief is dukkha. But also to have just a sense of uh, ennui dissatisfaction, uh, sort of an, an empty feeling, that's dukkha too. Dukkha, it covers the entire range of of mental unpleasantness. Well, it actually covers the entire range of unpleasantness. Okay. Whereas Sukha covers the entire range of pleasantness. What we call happiness is, uh, in, uh, if, if you look at the way the Buddhists break these things down, they say, well, Sukha and dukkha, and then of course between the two is a sukha, a dukkha, neither neither dukkha nor suka. So there's these three. But they say when you look at that dukkha, there's two kinds. There's dukkha that is physical and there's dukkha that's mental. And same thing with suka. there's suka that's physical and there's suka that's mental. So what we call happiness would be the mental aspect of suka, And unhappiness would be the mental aspect of dukkha. And granting that there is a state where there is neither, neither is present. But essentially, they are opposites to each other. The happiness and unhappiness are opposites to each other. And one of the very interesting things, one of the very first teachings after the, after the Buddha had his awakening and he went and rejoined uh, a group of uh, uh, forest ascetics that he had been with for several years, one of the very first things he told them, and he said, you know, he announced this as, as a profound truth that had not been articulated before. It, it was the, the truth of dukkha, the pervasiveness of dukkha, and the truth of the cause of dukkha, which was craving. So if we think of this, to be unsatisfied in any way is to want things to be different than the way they are. This is a very simple thing that we'll come back to over and over again. But the cause of all unhappiness, what keeps us from being happy, is that we elect to put ourselves in a state where we want things to be different than the way they are. And when we want things to be different than the way they are, then we will experience dukkha, or unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And this very simple thing that the Buddha taught is that (laughs) if you can let go of your craving to have something be different than the way it is, then dukkha Will be dukkha will disappear. Duca doesn't exist, and that's kind of obvious. Isn't? I mean, when I put it in these terms, isn't it almost too simple for for words? Yeah. If I stop wanting things to be different than the way they are, I'll stop being unsatisfied, which means I'll be satisfied. <laughs> and so the the path to happiness is to Stop clinging to the ideas of the way things should be instead of the way they are, and then allows happiness to arise. Which sort of implies happiness is kind of the natural, uh, a natural state, right? Well, happiness, sukha, is a feeling. It's a mental feeling. It's a pleasant mental feeling. So let's go back to joy and and sadness and examine what they are. Um, What we find, if we look to see what Buddhists have to say about piti, they say that piti is uh, a mental formation. It is a state of mind. It is a mental factor. Whereas they clearly distinguish it from sukha, which is uh, a feeling. So let's think of it as a state of mind. Also, when we look at the Buddhists, we say, well, what about other emotions? And in general, what we in the West call emotions are categorized (coughs) as states of mind, mental factors. So if we use that information, we can understand a little better what the thinking is about what joy is. Joy is a state of mind, and as you know, When joy is present, happiness arises, tends to happen automatically. So it's a state of mind that's very conducive to happiness. So this is what we're after again. Have we made any progress here? We're after (laughs) learning how to put our mind in a particular state that is conducive to the arising of happiness. That's what joy is about. Anybody have any thoughts on what I've said so far? Yeah. Um,
1: It came up for me when you were talking about sadness, that it was automatically equated with unhappiness. And uh, the question that I have is, can't sadness also be experienced with non-existence, as well as grief, as well as any emotion, and therefore not be equated with unhappiness?
0: I this part, the sadness and non-existence. Be, be
1: what I understood you to say is that sadness, if you're sad, then you're unhappy. And my question is, can't sadness be experienced with non-resistance? With non-resistance. Yes, yeah. and therefore it is not
0: in. Yeah. Well, yes, it can. And that's because... Sadness and unhappiness are not the same thing. Sadness is very conducive to unhappiness. And most of the time, when we're in a mental state of sadness, then we, we're also unhappy. right? But you're absolutely right that if you don't, that it is possible to have your mind in that state and not actually be unhappy. It's also possible or your mind to be in the state of joy, but not necessarily have pleasant experience of happiness as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that follows from what we've said. And it's also very important. If we're going to really understand these things, then uh, you know, that's exactly the kind of thinking we need to apply to it. To how different are they really? Does one always apply the other? Can we have happiness without joy? I had the feeling from what people said earlier that, that everybody already has a sense. Well, yeah, you can be happy without having joy. That's true. And you can be unhappy without necessarily having sadness, right? There can be other mental states that produce uh, unhappiness as well. I mean, anger would be one. Although some people might think they're happy when they're angry. How <laughs> contentment? Now, this is really interesting if we're just looking at the word contentment, to be contented, to be fulfilled, as opposed to being discontented or unfulfilled. It's very similar to saying to be satisfied, which also means to be fulfilled, uh, as opposed to be dissatisfied, to be unfulfilled. So uh, I think the important point is we have a whole variety of words here. But experientially, what we're talking about, contentment, serenity, happiness, satisfaction, all of these, when they are present, there is the pleasant mental feeling. And in in that regard, the way the word sukha is used is a little more precise and specific than all of these others. But what's implied in all of them is there is a pleasant mental feeling. Serenity is a pleasant mental feeling. Contentment is a pleasant mental feeling. And if we look at different kinds of pleasant mental feelings, we see that there are a variety of causes, and there can be a variety of different mental states underlying them. There can be a variety of different things present. We experience a kind of happiness when... uh, uh, when we are in the process of satisfying our, our greed, our desires, our craving, right? But that's not a, that's not what we would call contented or serene. It's quite different. And it's also very transient, very fragile. It's gets intense, but it can't last. It shoots to a peak, and then it immediately begins to fall away. Uh, because the cause for it begins to disappear. Whereas when we talk about contentment, satisfaction, serenity, uh, we can recognize that there is a quality of pleasantness, especially if it's not dependent upon external factors, if it's not dependent upon the satisfaction of desires and things like that, that in a way is much more profound, not as exciting but actually much deeper. So there are a lot of different flavors to this, depending on what lies behind the pleasant mental feeling that we have. But what sukha refers to is that essential quality of the pleasant mental feeling. And we can use the English word happiness to mean the same thing. As long as there is that quality of mental pleasantness, there is the happiness. Some people would like to use a word like bliss or things like this. But, uh, and you can do that if it, if it works for you. But happiness would be the most commonly used and least complicated, least confusing word to, to use to universally describe a positive affect that we experience uh, in the mind when when there, is, there are no unfulfilled desires, there are no aversions that we're in, in the throes of trying to overcome or, or escape from, right? When uh, there, is, there is that peace of satisfaction and happiness. Okay, so we've got a lot of different things here, but well, we, I, we have a pretty good idea of what happiness is Happiness, the feeling. Anyone else have anything they want to say? Yes? Sometimes with joy, it seems there's a um, part of it that uh, you feel like you're you're abandoning yourself. You're being absorbed into it. Mm -hmm. Yes. That is very true. Uh, Very true. So maybe we need to start talking more about joy. We've got happiness nailed down. Mm -hmm joy is a mental state okay and there are different degrees of joy right so the mental state of joy this is how i would describe it if your mind is in a state of joy it has to do with it influences the way the mind functions now have you are? Are you all aware that in any given moment there is there are hundreds or thousands more things that you could potentially be aware of than what you actually are? are, you, are, are you, does everyone recognize that? Uh, what you notice visually, tactile what you hear, as compared to what you don't hear, everything else, there's this huge filtering process that takes place, or this sort of selectivity. When the mind's in a state of joy, its, sele- its natural selectivity is biased in the direction of what is is good, beautiful, positive, pleasant, right? of all the things that you could pay attention to in any given moment, the stronger, the more joy is present, the more the state of your mind is is approaching the maximum of of what we would call the state of joy, then the more inclined your mind is going to be to pick out the the good, the beautiful and wholesome. And we, we compare that with sadness or grief. You've been in a state of grief or sadness before, and what does your mind orient towards? You see not the beautiful, you see the ugly. You see what's broken. You see what's bad. You see what's dirty. You see what's a problem. You see what you're going to have to deal with at some time or another. You see see what's wrong. Is that not right? Totally opposite states of mind. Producing a totally opposite selectivity of what you pay attention to in the moment. The sad person goes from one place to another, and each new place they arrive at, they see, they see the the ugly, the undesirable, the unpleasant. The joyful person goes from one place to another, and each new place they arrive, at, they see the good, the beautiful, and the wholesome. So that's that's one one clear difference between these two and one one way of beginning to see the effect that the state of joy has on your mind. It also has an effect on the way you perceive whatever it is that you pay attention to. You will perceive the more positive aspects. Uh, each person you meet in a state of joy you are going to Uh, and here's another thing just as just as in every situation there's a selection process going on about what we attend to and what we don't in anything that we do attend to uh, you're all already aware or you you become aware that uh, when you attend to something what you actually see is largely a projection of your own mind anybody that isn't already aware of that, you're not really seeing things as they are. You're seeing things the way your mind is conditioned to see them. You see them. Instantly, your mind draws upon all of its past experiences of similar things and creates an image of what it is that you're looking at, and then you have a particular perception. When you're in a state of joy, the process the mind undergoes in generating your perception of what you attend to shares the same bias it's going to call upon all the positive associations and so the person you meet is going to be seen as as a rather nice fellow whereas if you're in a different state of mind they might be perceived quite differently or a simple way I think, i just conveying this whole idea. You know, the old thing of, is the glass half full or half empty? In a state of joy, the glass is always half full. It's not half empty. It's not neither full nor empty. It's half full. Just as in a state of sadness, it's, ah, it's already half empty. So joy is a state of mind that biases your perceptions uh, of that which you attend to, And the joy has already biased your selection of what you attend to. And then, the feelings that arise from your perception. You perceive something, and then feelings arise, right? Now, when you're in a state of joy, and think about this, is this not true? If you're in a joyful state, if if you're in love, if you just got a promotion, if you just won the lottery, if one of these things happened and you're in a real joyful state of mind, Things that usually bother you, do they bother you? No. Things that would otherwise be absolutely horrible, they're not so bad, after all. Yeah, well... (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it is. (laughs) Things that are normally neutral, they can be wonderful. Have you ever been in a state of joy where just breathing makes you feel good? Just the simple act of breathing, right? (laughs) Or walking. Or you you just stand outside and you look at the sky, and it's like, oh my god, isn't this wonderful? This is what joy does to you. Uh, Every experience you have produces some kind of feeling, positive, negative, or neutral. And it shifts everything over so that what's even something that's still negative is a whole lot less negative. The neutral is now positive, and the positive is much more positive. It's wonderful. Because joy is a state of mind. Joy is a state of mind that alters the way the mind functions in the moment. What do you think of that? Yes, Anna? Isn't there also a
5: state of joy which is not related to positive aspects, but something very real? Like when you really on a very deep level have worked something through, and you let it go, and its sadness involved was was um, not suffering, but um, um, the word, I don't know, but there is a joy? Yeah. of a release, a joy of, of totally real in the moment, totally mm. getting it in the moment, and it's not related to positive, um, happy feelings. You know? It's just a very deep knowing of, of reality and that you got it at that moment.
0: Yes. Uh, let me just clarify what you're saying, though, here, so I make sure that I understand you. Now we can talk about what causes joy. You're not talking about that. You're not talking about it. About what causes it, are you?
5: Well, I I, I cannot separate right now when when you describe joy as as uh, the glass is always half full. Uh, you know, like the positive thinking, like the uh, the contentments, the happiness we have related. There's also a joy which comes through. Um, working through something which is not joyful in itself, but the joy comes because you have done it. And there is this uh, this feeling of, of release and freedom and that is a deep joy.
0: Well yes, that is. But it still sounds to me like you're talking about a cause of joy. When you're in the state of joy though, don't you see things oh, okay. as yeah I'm just talking about the way yeah. joy when you're in a state of joy, the way it makes your mind work. Yeah. yeah. But you're absolutely right. There are causes of joy, and this is really this is really important, because if the only causes <laughs> of joy were falling in love, winning lotteries, things like that, we'd be wasting our time here, right? <laughs> we should be out betting on the Powerball or something. <laughs> yeah. There there are many different uh, causes of joy, but I, I was just. And also, the, I should point out, too, that I'm talking about the effect that the state of joy has on the way that the mind functions, but I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, that it's some Pollyanna-ish, unrealistic, distorted view, because whether you're seeing the beautiful or the ugly, they're both there. Right? It's just which you, which you happen to be paying attention to. And you could potentially pay attention to both. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and likewise with your perceptions and likewise with your feelings. These are. I'm not, I'm not talking about something that's a distortion or something that varies in any way from the intrinsic way things really are. You're not seeing things any less as they truly are. You're just you. You're, you're always seeing them through some kind of lens. There's always some kind of uh, selectivity or bias in it. So, yes. You.
1: So uh, what's coming up for me is I'm wondering about the relationship between compassion and joy. Mm-hmm. 'Cause for me I've experienced states of compassion where I feel this deep sense of communion with, with another and it's that I feel what that person is feeling. Mm-hmm. And they might be in deep suffering, you know, driving by a homeless person. But yes. the, the point is that the compassion isn't a form of pity, it is really fully accepting the dharma in that moment, that that, that whatever is happening is is What is happening? And it's just accepting it, but also feeling it. Mm -hmm. And in that feeling, there can be pain. And that's not suffering. That's not unhappiness. Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship there?
0: Well, the relationship... The more fully developed, the more mature joy is, then the more likely you are to have that kind of experience. That... um, you see a homeless person, you experience compassion, but you also recognize that how how to say this without it sounding like something I don't mean it to be, but you realize that it's perfect the way it is. Mm-hmm. It, it truly is. Sense. You know, and so the happiness that you're experiencing which is a product of, of, of a, a mature state of joy in the mind. It comes from that deep, profound realization. Yeah. I'll point out something to you that I, I don't want. I'm going to really do my best this weekend not to get into tricky little technical things and stuff like that. But it's something called the Abhidhamma titi, which is the joy we're talking about is defined as one of the mental factors that is always present. It may be minuscule in its impact in any given moment, but it, it's a universally present mental factor. So it's just a hint to the fact that joy is not about taking you away from truth or reality or anything like that. It is taking you in the direction of what it really is. That's a
4: Well. Um, this thought arose in me as a result of the question you asked because there is such um, a sense of uh, serenity, it's hard to put a wor- word on it, but uh, a real warm feeling that arises within oneself when you really feel connected with somebody or somebodies, you know, that you really, really get on a very deep level how connected we are. Yes, and, yes. and that in itself can bring such a sense of uh, that feeling of unity of oneness. Mm-hmm. And it's not just words; it's not high in the sky. That's what really can one can feel. Mm-hmm. So if you're going by a homeless person, you really feel the oneness with that person,
0: yeah. or anyone. Yes, that's right. Um, but what about when you're you're with a friend having a cup of tea and you you really feel connected to them? That's a joyful experience, right? It's a lot of happiness. And when you're doing something that you're good at doing and you're totally focused on it and it's going really well. How does that make you feel? I picture looking at you. For those of you that don't know Pam, she's a wonderful potter. Mm-hmm. Picture the wheel is spinning. She's totally just creating, mm-hmm. absorbed in what she's doing. Is letting it flow through her hand. Is that not a state of joy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: That muse.
0: So the the roots of joy are in being being real, being present, being fully present, being relatively, and, and I just throw this in to keep you to, to remind you that there's all different degrees of joy, right? But being relatively free of the encumbrances of our own thoughts, and doubts, and expectations, and desires, and aversions, and judgments, and everything else, that when we get right down to it, joy blossoms when we, the thinking, rationalizing, worrying, planning, wanting, When we get out of the way, joy emerges. And that's a very important part of uh, learning to work with joy. And it's why joy is such a natural part of meditation. And a lot of people, actually the the way meditation is usually taught and the way the ancient meditation texts present it, joy is something that comes way down the road. You spend all this time developing single-pointed attention, and once you get to be a real, very skilled yogi, once you start to become an adept, then PT will arise with brilliant lights and energy moving up your spine, and this feeling, just just overwhelming feeling of, of joy and everything. But part of what I want to talk to you about this weekend is that. Is that because of the actual nature of joy, because of what we do in meditation, we should be tapping into joy right from the very first moment. And we should also be, you know, as, as soon as we come to understand the nature of joy, we should be deliberately cultivating joy in every aspect of our life. You know, we understand what it is. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we're going, what we don't want to do is to go chasing after good feelings. And that's not what cultivating joy is. It's not chasing after good feelings. But it's learning to cultivate our minds, cultivate our mental state, and learn to work with who and what we are so that that we grow and evolve in the direction that we want to. Anyone else have anything they'd like to say or contribute at this point? Well, I'll give you a really big clue right now as to how you cultivate joy. If you understand that joy is a state of mind, and that joy is a state of mind that affects what you attend to, how you perceive it, and the feelings that arise, then you can cultivate joy by emulating that state of mind. Let's look about what makes joy arise naturally in the course of ordinary daily life for ordinary people. Somebody does something nice for you. Um, there's some pleasant surprise arises. You... Uh, set out to do something or solve a problem, and you're successful at it. Um, there's a task that you need to perform, and you have all the skills, and everything just works, and you're able to do it. Exactly. These, these are the ordinary things in life that give us experiences of joy. And joy, will, that will tend to last until things go the other way. Somebody comes along and says something nasty to you. Something doesn't work out. Your printer won't print. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: and then <laughs> joy starts to, to fall apart again. So, so this is a pretty big clue that if we if we would like to have the state of mind of joy, it is cultivatable. Um, when you find yourself attending to only the the problems and the things that are broken and the things that aren't working, you can practice redirecting your attention. And of course, if somebody's not good at redirecting attention, we have this wonderful thing that you can do to learn to gain some control over your attention called meditation. Or you just sit for a little while each day practicing directing your attention intentionally, right? With when you get even a little bit good at it, you can go out in the world and start choosing what you pay attention to. Of course, an awful lot of what we pay attention to is what goes on inside our own heads, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not even what's happening outside of us. So we get up in the morning, and we start thinking about you know, the transmissions going on the car, and somebody at work you don't get along with, and this and that. It doesn't take long, and there's not much joy there, right? <laughs> and thinking about somebody you don't like, thinking about somebody that's slighted you we, we engage in a lot. The mind, actually, if we examine why this is, I'm, I'm not sure, but if we examine the way most most people, not everybody's, most people's mind tends to work, I'd say the majority of people are predisposed to spend more time thinking about what's not so good as compared to what's good. Every now and then we'll be the other kind of person, right? You know, it's like they just, you know, they're just always positive, and you know. But most of us are the other way around. We tend to dwell on, dwell on the problems. Maybe that's the reason. You know, like these big four brains we developed are all for solving problems. So therefore, we spend a lot of time thinking about all of the problems. But It's not conducive to a state of joy. So, you know, you you can emulate a state of joy by internally and externally attending to those things that are more positive. And whatever it is that you're engaging with, for whatever reason you're engaging with it, making a little bit of a conscious, deliberate attempt to shift your perceptions in terms of the positive, rather than the negative, it's like that. When you find yourself experiencing uh, dissatisfaction and unhappiness, you know you can you can let go of that. It's possible to let go of that, even even if it's just for a moment. It might might come back again later, but but you have you really have the potential to let go of it. What's the one thing? that keeps you from doing all the things I just suggested. Now that I've told you this, just go and do that and you'll be joyful and happy, right? (laughs) What's going to keep you from doing that? Forgetting. Forgetting, that's
3: right.
0: (laughs) You're going to completely forget about it. You're going to get up in the morning and all those negative thoughts are going to come up, and you forgot it all. (laughs) We need, to, we need to, uh, to change the way our minds work at a fairly deep level. And, and that's, that does take a little bit of time. And, you know. But it's doable. You can do it. You can do it. And there are things that contribute to your being able to do it. Meditation practices is certainly one of them. So, we know what joy is now? Mm -hmm. I'd like to make a distinction between ordinary joy, that's the kind that we're all familiar with, and meditative joy. This is the one that the... uh, uh, British colonial translators called rapture. You know, that's the one that you wonder, you you read in the meditation books. Am I ever going to get to experience that one? Call <laughs> that meditative joy. It arises in meditation, as a part of meditation. And it also is most, usually when it happens, much more intense. And it includes a whole lot of other, you know, it includes a lot of excitement. That. That, that that is part of the nature of joy is it tends to be exciting it's energizing. Uh, ordinary joy is and so is meditative joy you know uh, if you did see a ten year old girl whose uncle, uncle just gave her a pony <laughs> what would she do?
5: jumping around. up and he down
0: you know chills going up and down her hair standing on the yeah it's exciting. And uh, if you've ever been in love, right? All that energy, excitement. Real easy to go to sleep,
3: right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of energy associated uh, with joy. Meditative joy is different than ordinary joy and its origins. The ordinary joy we experience in our life is something that the mind starts to go into that positive state as a result of positive experiences. And that's why why a big positive experience will bump us into a strong state of joy right away. Or a lot of little pleasant experiences accumulated over time will will move us into a, a joyful state. And it's also the vulnerability of ordinary joy. you're you're really joyful about something until somebody rear-ends you and you realize you didn't renew your insurance. (laughs) (laughs) That sort of thing. So so meditative joy is different in that it arises in meditation, and uh, of course we're going to have to have a look at why it arises in meditation. In a way, if you think about it, it doesn't seem rather odd if you sit down and concentrate for a long time, that all of a sudden you'd be overwhelmed by joy. Mm-hmm. But I know that's happened to some of you. Right? Mm-hmm. Probably still seems rather odd. <laughs> so, and... Uh, it, it seemed odd to me for a long time, and I tried to I tried to figure out exactly what it is, why it is that a particular that you reach a particular stage in your meditation skill, and all this joy comes up. And uh, you know, I gradually over time, more and more of the pieces started to come together. I mean, the obvious thing is that it's related to the degree of concentration that you have. If you sit in meditation and your mind is just constantly going here, there and everywhere, not going to be any joy. Although if you sit there and you have a really you know a nice stable meditation for a while, you might have some joy, you might have some happiness, you might have some pleasure arose. But it's not it's not this exciting fireworks kind of thing that, you know, you hear about it's not until concentration becomes uh, single-pointed and effortless. Single-pointed means that you focus on something and your really mind just stays where you put it. And effortless means that it stays there by itself. You don't have to keep struggling all the time. But it just, and then this joy comes up, this intense joy. So, and uh, I have come to understand that much, much better partly as a result of teaching meditation and watching what happens with the different people and I get to the stage where joy arises. But two major sources of causing it click together in my mind. One was the work of a psychologist by the name of Csikszentmihalyi. Anybody heard of that? yeah It's flow. Mm-hmm. Studied flow. And picked up this book one day, quite a few years ago, and opened it up. And the first thing I read, I said, he is describing what happens in meditation. i got to read this book. I've got to see what this is all about. It's the words, exactly. It's just bang on. So I, I looked at this phenomenon that he called flow, that he studied in many people. And it gave me many, many clues. And then, it was about maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, something like that, a fellow by the name of Richard Schenkman uh, wrote a book called The Experience of Samadhi. And he'd spent a lot of time talking to different meditation teachers and trying trying to figure out the significance of some of the different terms that were used in describing both mindfulness meditation and concentration meditation. And I got to one page in his book where he's discussing the term ekagata. Eka means one, and gata means gone to. And this poly word ekagata, which literally means gone to one had traditionally been translated into English as single-pointed. Now, the single part makes sense. Pointed was, obviously, the reason that it was translated into English as single-pointed is that when the first people who began translating polytext into English went and talked to some meditation teachers, they said, Oh, yeah, you focus on something, your mind stays right on that single-pointed, that's a cognitive. Oh, okay, single pointed. But in his researchers, Richard had discovered that in other contexts, that word was being used to mean something other than single pointed. Which, the thing is that I, I already knew that single pointed concentration would produce PT, but I knew that it was not necessary. But then on that page, he—it's it, funny—he—he he just used a phrase which, to me, everything in an instant clicked together. It was like lights coming on. Of course, you know. And I had dinner with him a couple of weeks afterwards. He came, and gave a talk here. And, you know, I told him about that. But the phrase that he used was unification of mind. Unification of mind. Because when I saw that word. I realized, well, yeah, that's why you can be single-pointed. Your mind's no longer trying to pull you in 16 different directions. Your mind is unified. That's why the PT arises. It's not the fact that you're focused on a single thing, a single object in your meditation at all. Mm -hmm. It's that your mind has come together in this unified way. And, of course, it's like in a instant this all became clear in my mind because I had read what Haley said about flow. And he, the things that he said pointed to exactly the same thing. He talked about flow experiences. Now, just for those of you that are not familiar with Haley and what he studied and calls flow, he's one of a group of, psychi- of psychologists in both Europe and the United States that have been uh, studying optimal experience. And flow is optimal experience. So, he found, of course, uh, various athletes who get into the zone and they, they're in this state of flow. They're absolutely, totally, perfectly, joyously happy doing what they're doing, and they just they do it. But he even found Uh, factory workers who get into the state of flow. He found surgeons that get into the state of flow. He found a lot of musicians who get into Mm -hmm. flow. And, you know, that's probably probably one of the big draws for somebody who has musical talent to become a musician is Mm -hmm. because uh, they can't enter into that state of flow. He found all kinds of people. Chess players, all kinds of people. But he identified the specific characteristics. That one of the things is that they were totally involved in the activity of the moment. Everything else was gone. You know, that unification of mind thing again. You know, One part of the mind wasn't worried about this and that, and the other part, you know. Every part of the mind was focused entirely on the task at hand. Totally present, totally in the here and now, totally in the flow of the moment. Right? All of the energy, consciousness, everything, focused and flowing. And uh, well, some of the other things that uh, are very important is that for an activity to produce flow, the the challenge of what the person is doing, and their ability must be perfectly in balance. In other words, they need to be right at the edge of not being able to succeed, but succeeding. If it's too easy, it doesn't produce flow. And if it's too difficult, it doesn't produce flow. But he also found that it's an internal process that decides what success is. So, you could do something and if you're always focused on how good you think you should be able to do it, rather than how good you're able to do it, you won't be in flow. But, And the activity has to give you immediate feedback. You have to have a clear idea of what is success and you have to know Immediately, whether or not you're succeeding. And if these criteria are met, then the activity becomes a flow of activity. Well, doesn't that precisely describe what's happening when you're in meditation, when the expectation you have of what you're going to do is exactly what you're capable of doing in the moment? And I keep telling meditators all the time, you know, they say, oh, it's so hard, you know, I, I can trying, meditating, doing everything you say, but, you know, still I sit here and, uh, it's so hard. It's, well, drop your expectations. <laughs> Just do the practice. This is all you have to do: do this and this and this. If this happens, do that. And the thing is, if you do that, it becomes a flow activity. If you set your expectation at the place where of what you're capable of, then you will experience some degree of flow, even a beginning meditator will. Of course, the more challenging it is, and the better your skills, the more intense the, the state of flow will be. Which is why if somebody's engaged in single-pointed meditation, they get this huge surge of PT arising. But it's the same principles. The unification of mind, flow, PT. And that's, that's, that's the secrets that I came here to Try to share with you, and uh, over this weekend, mainly what I what I really hope that we can do is practice together, discovering how to actually do this, uh, and and in two arenas. One is when you're sitting in meditation, and the other is when you get up from the cushion to try to make your whole life uh, become more joyful. And as it becomes more joyful, of course, you'll experience more happiness. When you sit down and meditate, you'll bring more joy to the cushion. And that, that that will improve your concentration and your mindfulness really quickly. I promise you, it will. And so, of course, the more your concentration and your mindfulness improves on the cushion, the easier it's going to be for you when you get off the cushion to go out and... Practice this in the world and start experiencing more of the same thing there. So uh, to just kind of snowball. That's what I'm hoping for anyway, is that, is that we can explore that and help you get to the place of, of making that happen. So. All right, I've talked enough. You tell me something. Did I explain everything so perfectly, clearly? There are no questions. There's no confusion. There's no doubt. Yes?
2: I am very moved by the the, um, (coughs) words of unification of mind. uh, It raises all kinds of possibilities. Tell me more. Most of my meditation training has been from uh, Shinsen. Mm -hmm. um, So I have an experience of what unification is from his techniques. And um, I found those techniques to be um, easily mastered. And that unification is what happens when the Samadhi arises. Mm and
0: uh, it's it's easy.
2: It's easy. <laughs> when you said that, I was, wow, this is. But I also got that there's other there's something. When you said that, I realized that there are um, perhaps more layers mm-hmm. and and deepening of that that is possible, which I'm really excited about because I was I was at the place of okay, now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been i kind of in okay now what for about two years and now I
3: just got what <laughs> oh, wonderful <laughs>
0: yeah. deeper layers yeah yeah I I like to describe the mind as being this huge collection of processes and this tiny little subset of them that are conscious and of course that's what we. We have to work with that. and But if we work with it skillfully, then the ramifications of what we do with that small part of our mind that's conscious spreads out all of the rest of it, and layers. I, I That's a very good image, I think. Because in the process of meditation, you go through the stages where some other parts of your mind that are not conscious keep thrusting their contents into your consciousness, and trying to take you somewhere else other than where you're intending to go, or cause you to do something other than what you're intending to do. Right? So it's really clear that there are a lot of other processes there that are not with the project. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. And this attention stuff we're working with this is a very valuable, very precious commodity that all these different parts of your mind are competing for, you know. And so, uh, if it looks like attention isn't being uh, adequately utilized, then some of these other processes want to, you know, say, "Hey, look at my stuff." <laughs> so uh, you can't really unify. The, you, you don't really have a unified mind and, until it starts to penetrate down to those deeper levels and, and involve those other processes. Another thing that happens in the course of meditation is that uh, at a certain point, all the sort of ordinary, everyday noise quiets down, and other stuff starts to come up, the deeper stuff. Uh, sometimes it's way deep, buried stuff that, Oh, you, you thought it was gone for good, but no, it's not. It's still there. <laughs> and sometimes that stuff needs to be attended to. It needs to be. Uh, it needs to be cleared because, you know, until you, until you, dealt with it, it's going to keep. It's not just going to come up in meditation. That's the good thing that it does is that it comes up in meditation. It gives you an opportunity to look it in the eye and take it for what it is and let go of it. It's all the time that you don't know it's there. But it's affecting every decision you make. It's affecting how you treat other people. It's affecting the emotional reactions you have to things that happen. That's, that's, the, that's the bad side of, of these things. So unification of mind also implies that, that in these deeper layers, there's, there's, a, there's a clearing that takes place. And there's also another aspect of it, too, that different parts of your mind are programmed to, I mean, all these different parts of your mind are, they have a job, so to speak, in terms of what's best for this self. And they're not always, uh, the the, the goals and, and objectives they're working with aren't always the best ones. Some of them are really outdated. Might have been appropriate when you were in kindergarten, but not anymore. (laughs) And and all this has to do with desire and aversion and things like that. So, you know, for your mind to get unified, all these different parts have to start achieving some degree of, of. Harmony, coherence, synchrony, and and a a clearer and more common sort of set of values and goals and objectives for what you are going to be as you go through your life. We actually have a lovely word, integrity. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know that it gets used all that appropriately always, but. The implication of that is that it's an inner oneness. You know, a person with integrity—they know what they believe in. They, they know what they stand for. They know what kind of person they are. This is this is who I am and what I believe in. And, and if a person has that kind of integrity, you can rely on them totally. Right? But most of us don't. We've got all these different parts that are not quite in agreement. And, depends on which everyone is, happens to be in the in the moment will determine what kind of behavior. And we don't trust people because we know that, that uh, their reactions to certain circumstances and their decisions can be influenced by any of these different factors that are operating within them. And as we get to know them, you know, we, we become aware of the the absence of integrity that there is in people. Of course, we get to know somebody well enough, we adapt to it, we accept that. But what we'd really like to do is achieve that in ourselves. That's, that's an aspect of unification of mind. Yes? One of the ways I describe uh, this to myself when I'm feeling a little bit of like, a positive type of feeling is it feels like I'm coming home to, who, to my true home. Yeah. Inside myself, so in that integrity, that starts to feel like mm-hmm. that a little bit. Yes, yes. You know, It just feels brighter and brighter, and, and it's there. It's in there. Mm-hmm. I just need to open more to it. Yeah. that's right. You open up to it, and if you're open to it, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with all of these other. Ways that different parts of ourselves are, other than the fact that some of them are no longer appropriate, and most of all that, that they interfere with the cohesive, coherent functioning of uh, of, of your mind. As, as a, you know, they, they don't allow you to have that sense of wholeness, being at home, being at one. The internal conflict. How can you feel whole when you've got internal conflict? I, And you don't have, of course, you don't have inner peace when you've got internal conflict. Were you thinking of saying something? (coughs) Okay, well, um, just... Anything anybody else wants to say? Yes. How would you compare rapture and meditative joy? Well, what I, I'm using the term meditative joy specifically to refer to what has, is usually translated as rapture in some of the older texts. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same thing.
3: Maybe depending on the low, uh, level of joy that you achieve, isn't the class full... Is, uh, isn't the glass full rather than just half full? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, uh, if you're talking about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the inner cup of joy becomes completely full, I was using the, the half full glass as, the, uh, as an example of how you would regard the things that you encounter in the world, but yes. Yes.
2: I like that what he said because I, I see joy as overflowing.
0: The cup is overflowing. Yes, and that, that's that's where we that's where we would like to be, isn't it? Yeah. But joy comes in in lesser measures than that. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> when you had that insight when you were
1: reading the book, did you experience joy? Did yes. you describe that
0: as joy? Yes. As a matter of fact. That's one of those things that consistently produces joy, or those those epiphanies that we have when um, when there's something that we've been concerned with for a long time, and then the pieces all come together. It just it fills us with joy. That's the same thing that happens in meditation too, when we have insights in meditation, we'll have a sudden surge of joy. well, wow. and, and it will be exciting, and, and it's so exciting that, uh, you know, it sometimes interrupts our meditation. Yes? Um, well, I was thinking about why a lot of us are not joyful. I mean, if our natural state is to be joyful, but, you know, our whole education sort of directs us in the direction. Yeah. It's sort of like the whole no brain, no pain type of thing where you know, if you don't know what's going on things are fine and you're Mm -hmm. happy, but if you know what's going on. (laughs) You know, um I mean that's
5: my whole education to being discerning and um, and it ends up being so much I mean, you know there's there are things around that aren't very joyful. (laughs) And um so what's my point? Um
3: um, just that I don't think we should feel guilty about not feeling joyful, which I sometimes do feel, um, mm. sort of,
0: you know, which just makes me feel worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't feel guilty about not feeling joyful. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, one of the things that Chuck me, Haley and uh, some of the other positive psychologists and some anthropologists have looked at is uh, uh, cultural effect and. Not every culture is as conducive to joy as, as others. And as in general, most cultures tend to limit joy. You know, and, uh, because human happiness is a powerful way of manipulating groups and populations of people. Um, I mean, it can be done. Deliberately, but it seems that in cultural development, it happens not so much intentionally and deliberately as just it's the way the power structures evolve. And if you if people had too much access to joy and happiness, it'd be a whole lot more difficult to get them to do what other people want them to do. Uh, but uh, really, what I want to point out to you is. is that not everyone has the same sort of set point, natural set points for happiness. And I don't know if that really conveys it adequately. One person can be truly happy, but look and act very different than another person when they're truly happy. It is very much a subjective thing. Uh, Some people are more or less disposed, readily disposed to experience joy. You know, I talked earlier to some people that naturally tend to see the positive side of everything. And I don't know if it's genetic or how they grew up or, or a combination, probably a combination. But for those people the joy comes more easily. Other people Um, coming from a very difficult background, uh, joy may not come as easily for you. So there, there are a lot of individual variations. What's important is not how much joy you have compared to anybody else, but whether or not you have the joy that you need to give you the sense of fulfillment, the happiness. In other words, your mind works in the way that is most that creates the greatest sense of fulfillment for you. It's, it's really not something to compare with other people, but it is something to realize that that, depending on your background and your makeup, both these things may not come necessarily as easily as they do to somebody else, and when they do come they may not manifest in the same way. Some people it takes absolutely nothing and they're jumping up and down you know, excited. And other people, you know, it doesn't matter the greatest thing in the world happens to them and they just smile and say, Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't know which of you was I was
3: wondering I do work with kids.
0: Yes.
1: I was wondering that link could play and joke.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The, like, the, play the, the link, link link play well, and joy. Play is a play play is learning activity and, and children learn a lot of different things when they play. One of the things that they can learn though is joy. I mean joy the the flow state is really uh, a kind of joy that's not dependent upon, you know, getting good things. It's it's something you generate internally. And one of the things that play can do is is teach a person how to create a flow state for themselves. It doesn't work the same some some kids when they play have to win, and the only thing that makes them happy is winning right? and so play itself is not going to be a joy inducing activity. winning is the only joy inducing activity. Other kids though are you know they internalize the process and they find that. Balance between uh, between the challenge and their ability, and so playing becomes a joyful activity. Now, over time, they'll develop a lot of skill at the game because of that, because they enjoy it so much. Right? But there's a, a very different orientation there. So children learn children learn from playing. They they can learn different ways of producing joy in themselves including the flow state or other less <laughs> less in, independent ways of producing joy. But most games are most games have evolved in such a way that they have a high potential for producing joy. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 why we go back to them and keep playing them. Or that's why they attract new players continuously and continue to exist is because they have evolved in such a way that they're conducive to creative joy.
4: I'm thinking about the strong linkage between joy and the chemistry of the body and the genetics and one's experience, and as mm-hmm. we've been talking. But then there are people who are in very, very um, poor states of health. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you can still have um, a propensity towards a happy disposition because of your genetics. But then, so the, the core of my question is: You. It seems like, in spite of your body chemistry, in spite of your experiences, and in spite of your genetics. And all that's linked, linked, of course. Um, the joy can arise not from those things, but from but from the eliciting of joy from within in the meditation experience. So it doesn't have to be linked to those other things. Is that that's correct, isn't it? I mean, that's I would correct. I would think that would be true. Yeah. That 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 joy could arise purely. A, a, a kind
0: of transcendent quality mm-hmm. and that's what's that's what's important it, not just about about, uh, about joy but it, it's we do it, we are not fixed entities and we are self our, our reality is created by our minds and the core part of our reality is the self that we think we are Everything about that is subject to uh, what, you know, we, we can determine what directions it goes. So uh, all these other things, you know, biochemistry of your brain, your physical body, your, your past history, your genetics, everything, these all play a role, but they, uh, there are really no limits, and that's the wonderful thing about it. I, you know, enlightenment is possible. Awakening is possible for anyone. And what is awakening? It's coming to that place where there is no more suffering. That you have changed the way your mind works so that you're no longer subject to suffering you know, in the same way. And if that weren't true, then you know, then many people would have no chance. But so I, I think everybody has the chance. We, need, we, we are what we are. And what we are is perfect, but we have unlimited potential. And so we begin by accepting what we are, thirdly. And then we continue by accepting our unlimited potential and seeing what can come of that, what can develop out of that. And... Well, I, I'm sitting here in front of you tonight, and I'm going to talk to you about joy this weekend. But I've been very sick the last few days. I have, uh, as a lot of you know, I have chronic neurological Lyme disease, and sometimes I have some bad spells. And so over the last few days, I've been in a lot of physical pain, a lot of fatigue. You know, thoughts. The thought of rousing myself up to come teach it was how can I do that? But what I what I've done is I've made it into a flow experience. All of you wonderful people came here, and I came here too. And I knew that my body and my mind. At some point, would start to get past these things, and you know, whatever pain there is in my body, there's also pleasure too. So I can I can look at that. I can look at one, or I can look at the other. So I kind of, you know, I've been in, in a way. This is this is remarkably wonderful. It's like it's like a gift. So here I is. I, I here I am. I set myself up to give a weekend teaching on joy and so for 4 days for 4 days in advance i find myself in a in a state where you know it's like <laughs> i i have to make this work myself or you know or or i can't do this i can't i can't come there i can't talk to you about this so so all of the things i am going to talk to you about i've talked to you about you know is what i've been doing with myself for the last couple of days getting ready to come here And not because I thought it was a good idea, but because the universe thought I should do it. (laughs) So, you know, and I feel pretty joyful right now. But I didn't necessarily feel all that joyful a couple of days ago. But, uh, like I say, I'm looking forward to this. Looking forward to what we can what we can do with this, and uh, so I uh, tomorrow morning I'll have a, I'll give you a handout of some notes which is uh, it sort of supplements the things that I talked about here tonight maybe some of the other things that I'll talk about this weekend it's it's all on the informational side of it you know, it's a more detailed description of of what the, the flow experience is and a little more detailed examination of the etymology of joy and happiness in both English and poly and things like that. So, uh, but what I want is is, we'll do a, a fair bit of experiential stuff. Not that, I, I'm not saying that you're going to, all leave Sunday as ecstatically joyful beings. Although, I'd love it if you were. (laughs) But, and maybe it will happen. What I want want to do is is let's work together, um, share our experiences, and see if we can apply an understanding of what joy is and how it works in such a way that we can tap into that more easily, and we can make it a part of, a, much more a part of our experience than it normally would be. And I believe—is everybody here a meditator? Is anybody here that's not a meditator? You're, you're not, or no, you, you are. Okay, good. You're well. We'll work on getting <laughs> you to be a meditator. Too. Great. So. Um, my objective isn't really to uh, to help you just just to help you find out ways to have more joy in your life. What I want to do is to show you how you can use this understanding to improve and I hope accelerate the development of your meditation practice. Because Unificate, the unification of mind that I talked about, so much of the early part of your practice is just about bringing about that unification. And as I said in, in this sort of traditional sequence, the unification comes and then the joy comes out of that. But I'm finding that it can work the, the other way, that the more joy that you can develop, both in and out of your meditation, the more quickly the unification of mind will come about, and the more quickly you can reap the benefits of, uh, of an advanced meditation practice. So, that's that's the deeper agenda: is to is to see if we can't turn joy into a powerful driver for developing a more effective meditation practice. And. Meaning, use the rewards of both a more joyful life and a, a, a better meditation practice. That, that's what I'm hoping for. So, what what we'll do over the weekend is we'll we'll, we'll try to get as clear as we can on, on the, the methodology and the basis for it, things like that. And then you can take it out, we'll take it away, and work with it. And see where you go.